Yeah, so I'm basically a mechanical engineer. I started my career with McLaren F1. Um, and through my time there, I ended up at the track. I worked my way towards the track. I did performance engineering in 2014 for uh, JB. And then I moved to Aston Martin and I've done strategy for them since. So I ended there last year as head of race strategy. And yeah, it's been an incredible journey. Um, and love sitting on the pit wall and being involved with it all. Really. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Track Limits Podcast, sponsored by Formula Addict. I'm your host, Swish. I'm with my co-host, Henny. And today, we have an incredible guest, a person who has been named in the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, person who's been a strategy engineer for multiple teams in F1, Bernie Collins. Welcome Hi. to the show. Thank welcome, you for welcome. having me. <laughs> of course. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Good. I'm awesome. very pleased to be here. Yeah. How's the trip over to London? Yeah, it was all right, actually. Yeah. It was it's very cold. Very yeah. cold. Oh, it is. Yeah. It's freezing. It's good. No and delays? No delays. Oh. I remember Made when <laughs> we were messaging and you were telling us where you were coming from. We actually thought you were coming from Poland. Yeah, <laughs> we totally, yeah. We were like, Warsaw? <laughs> like, wait. Like, what? <laughs> Why do we go to Poland? Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, but throughout the course of this hour, Bernie, we're going to go over kind of three sections. Q1, all kind of racing-related questions. Q2, diving into more of you as a professional, who you are off the track, what you're up to now. And then finally, the rapid-fire round. Oh. <laughs> It's, a, it's fun. I I'm promise. ready. I'm ready. Yeah. We're going to pepper you with questions and see how fast and rapid your answers can be. Okay. Great. So let's get started into Q1. I think first question we ask every guest is, describe your career for us in 30 to 45 seconds. I know there's a ton to unpack there, <laughs> but just tell us about some of the core accomplishments you're proud about. Yeah. So I'm basically a mechanical engineer. I started my career with McLaren F1. Um, and through my time there, I ended up at the track. I worked my way towards the track. I did performance engineering in 2014 for uh, JB. And then I moved to Aston Martin and I've done strategy for them since. So I ended there last year as head of race strategy. And yeah, it's been an incredible journey. Um, and love sitting on the pit wall and being involved with it all, really. And for people who are you know newer fans who might not really know kind of what a race engineer does. Tell us a little bit about kind of what goes under your job responsibilities. What are you in charge of? Yeah, so strategy engineers basically trying to get the best out of the car and trying to get the best finishing result. So we generally look after both drivers. So there's two drivers to a team. Um, and, you know, you're not responsible for how fast the car is or um, how competitive you can be, but you're trying to get the most out of the car. So if you think that your expected points are X, then you're always trying to do a little bit better than that. So that's three decisions we make on the pit wall and um, which tires we fit, what stop lap we choose, how we react to safety cars or weather conditions or any of these sorts of things. Um, and then a lot of it's sort of the analysis after the event, like what we could have done better or what we could learn from what someone else did. Um, or looking, you know, pre-event, what our plans are for Friday practice, how we're going to do our long runs, what we're going to do in qualifying. So there's a lot goes into it, but ultimately it's points on the board at the end of Sunday. Yeah. And for newer fans who you know, love to watch the sport or even just watch the races on Sundays, they really don't understand what goes behind the scenes because they just watch the drivers and enjoy that part. But what happens in, on that pit wall with you guys on race weekends? Yeah, so a lot of it is, like if you just think of the strategy function, a lot is reacting to what's going on around it. So there may be a safety car. What are you going to do? Are you going to stop? Are you going to change tires? And we hear a lot of the, you know, on the TV, the interaction between the driver and the race engineer or whatever. And we're trying to like take that information from the driver and make the best use of it. So in the garage, you get a, like a range of different engineers. Um, some are looking at like data specific to the engine or to the gearbox or whatever it might be. Some people are looking at overall car setup. So how do we make the car a little bit faster through the various like mechanical setup or aero setups that we can do? And then the strategist is looking at how can we react to everyone else? We're looking a lot at lap times of other people, a lot at our own lap times, tire temperatures, all these sorts of things. So there's a whole range of data coming at you from all sorts of sides. Um, and then maybe what people don't realize is we work on the pit wall or at the track, but then also there's a whole team back in the factory. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to talk to those guys all the time, keep in touch with them, fill them in on what's going on because they're not in the same environment that we are. So yeah, it's really interesting dynamic, but it's like really have a deal. And, and how does that team mesh? Like what's the dynamic in that pit wall or inside the, the factories? Yeah, it's really interesting because like on the pit wall, sometimes things are really obvious because yeah. you're there and you're living it. Like, you know, it's windy or, you know, it's really wet or whatever it might be. And you're trying to convey that to people in the factory who are in this nice air conditioned room. <laughs> Often it's the middle of the night where yeah. they are because of wherever you are in the world. So there's like that dynamic where they're tired and grumpy because it's midnight in the UK and they should be in bed or we're tired and grumpy because we're jet lagged. 
So there's a lot going on across it. We generally deal in like an intercom system. So it's fully live communication to the pit wall or to the office when we're sat in there. And then a lot of data goes live back to the factory as well, you know, very small lag. Um, so they're seeing a lot of the data that we're seeing just in a like more controlled environment, which has advantages, right? Because they don't have as much emotion and they don't have like the heat of Singapore or whatever it might be. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 interesting dynamic. And when, when it came to the role itself, like how did you even get into it? Like what's the process like of becoming a race engineer? I mean, is there a test? Do you have to play F1 manager? Like, <laughs> like what do you have to do? Th that would be good to have. Yeah. Like. <laughs> um, I think for me, you know, I started as a design engineer and then I made the move to trying to get more involved in the track. So I did performance engineering. Um, now that's pretty unusual, but like a lot of people start with like vehicle dynamics and more like the fundamentals of how the car works together. And then from that, you know, move into the race engineering role. For me, I ended up um, doing a lot of like trackside experience in not Formula One. So I did a lot of GT racing and things mm. in order to get some trackside experience, get some experience working with some drivers, so I sort of built up like all of the stuff I did at the weekend in order to prove I wanted to be at the track in F1. Um, for strategy, a lot of people do like mathematics degrees and stuff. So not even engineering that I did. Um, and tends to be that people start in the factory doing a lot of like research um, and then move towards sort of the trackside environment. So there's lots of like different bits of progression, but not necessarily a test. <laughs> do you think that needs to be a standard? going moving forward <laughs> to have a test yeah. <laughs> i think it's like it's really interesting because um like the reason we have strategists on the pit wall is because it's not all obvious in the data what you should do mm. so you've got like a bit of human reaction a bit of communications with others so it's a bit like you get people who are smart epidemically and people who are smart like in real life and it's a bit that mix where you need like a good combination of both mm. so it'd be really hard to devise a test <laughs> yeah. for that is it true? Like, I, I don't know if I read this on Twitter or something, but uh, the Mercedes uh, in, in their factories will do about 30,000 different sessions of just running the same sessions to see which one's the best optimal. Is that something that all teams do? Like, what so is that like? I, there could be two things that it yeah. means. So sometimes, like, if we're training up a new member of staff, we can, like, replay a session and get their reaction to things and what they would do. So we do that a lot to sort of, like, allow staff to practice. Um, but what we do like on a Saturday night when we've got all the qualifying positions, we we've estimated what we think the tires will do. We've estimated the car pace. We start to run like simulations then of what we think will play out in the race. So we run like 100,000 race sims. Wow. We give like um, we give the cars like lots of variability so they can do a one, two, three stop with different probabilities or different stop laps and react to things in different ways. And what you're trying to find is what gives the overall best um, finish and position. And that's probably your chosen strategy. Mm. So it allows cars to race against each other and get stuck in traffic and have to overtake and all these things. Um, but yeah, like you, you start that process on a Thursday or Wednesday before mm. you go to the track. And like you've got loads of unknowns then. And as you go through the weekend, you build the unknowns. So you like formulate your tire model a bit better. On Saturday, you've got your qualifying positions. So you've got all these things that mean by Sunday morning, you've got a pretty good idea, at least of the starting positions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then like some teams do it that during the race, like as you delete, you know, you be further in, you've got more and more of the knowings, like you know yeah. your position on lap 10 or whatever, so you can rerun the sim again type thing. So yeah, it's really, yeah, there's a lot of interaction there with simulation. And if you're running the sim so many times, how often do you guys leave a race week and then saying like, holy crap, I did not see that coming <laughs> at all. <laughs> like, yeah. I think like the thing that's like difficult is, you know, even on Saturday night when you run the simulations for qualifying position, generally by the first corner, the positions are all different again. So like as much variability as you can build into it, you might end up with something that's a really small percentage of the Sims that you ran mm. um, for loads of reasons or like often we've got to the grid and it's like suddenly raining that nobody's seen mm -hmm. coming or whatever it might be. Um, so yeah, we sort of, we have a like, a, you know, a base plan, but we've got like all these other plans that we're working to as well. So often it's not something that you totally didn't see coming, but like right. there is loads of, um, there's loads of things where it has been something that was like, whoa, nobody had that on. Or like the running joke would be, you'd be leaving the pit wall and someone would say, I didn't see that in the strategy <laughs> report. It's like, yeah, that wasn't in my report, so that's fine. And I've always been fascinated by when we are watching the races and let's say a safety car comes on or, you know, rain happens. 
what what is that initial hierarchy of decision making that goes on where yeah. we have to change to either the tires or we have to pit like what how does that go yeah so i think like the like let's say the safety car ones um pretty straightforward or more straightforward in the fact that we discuss that so much yeah. so even in the laps before we're discussing what would happen now if we have a safety car so like we yeah. have that discussion like time and time again but if you think of like i guess the best example is um in bahrain in 2020 when Checo won the race mm -hmm. Um, he crashed on that one. So you've got like some people whose responsibility is to check if the car is damaged, some people's responsibility to check if we need new tires, then I'm looking at if we should change tires anyway or not. So everyone's got like these different bits of responsibility that they're building into the bigger picture. And then once we have that bigger picture, then it's really like the race strategist decision if we are going to change for whatever reason. Or it might be like, the race engineer's decision if something's damaged and we need to stop for X, Y, Z. So there's a few like different decisions that you make, but generally you get people from the factory giving information to the pit walls, so be that the race engineer, the strategist. And how the comms work is the strategist will make a decision that we're going to stop or not, and then they tell the race engineer, such that the driver only ever hears the race engineer's voice. So there is like quite a good hierarchy, but like, Sometimes people go, well, are you sure about this decision? And then you have to like double check and decide again, but it's okay. And for a lot of these decisions, this is happening like within seconds. Yeah. Like that whole hierarchy you just mentioned is happening from like point A to point B in like a couple seconds. Yeah. You know, I feel like anytime in a group project, there's obviously sometimes where one person doesn't maybe live up to potential, right? Yeah. Or even on the, you know, engineers, for example, that are doing pit stops, for example, maybe one doesn't have the best performance yeah. and it legs the entire team down. Is yeah. that the same thing with the strategy team as well, where like there have been moments where in a team, one person maybe wasn't performing as well, which did kind of crumble the speed in which decisions were being made? Yeah, sure. So like we have like the Bahrain example, the qualifying lap that year was 53 seconds. Mm -hmm. So Czech was a shunt at the start of the lap. You got something around that time to make a decision before he gets to the end of the lap we end up like as like i say like splitting the roles so we've got like four or five people on the team someone will just be watching lap times someone will just be watching video whatever it might be um and we do try and give people as much responsibility as we can and um, because it encourages their learning and really we don't really have time for anything else so i don't have time to double check all of the work mm -hmm. um and the way we deal with that is we do like loads of analysis afterwards so if someone maybe hasn't made a decision that quickly or maybe made the wrong decision we go through it all afterwards and say or to say how can we make that better next time around? But like it is a process and you do really need to rely on the people in the team. And how much do the drivers, like, I mean, you worked with people like Checo and you know, Sebastian Vettel and Nico Hulkenberg, like how much do the drivers get to influence the strategy? Do you see that once in a while they're overriding the decisions that you guys are making? I think it's a bit of a mix and it's very driver dependent. So like, for example, we do a lot of the discussion on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning with the drivers. Like they need to be really on board with whatever plan you're doing. Um, often people will say, you know, like Sebastian was very good at saying, oh, have you thought about X, Y, Z? Or what if this car does this? Or um, sometimes you'll have drivers that will have done that race like five or six years before and they'll go, oh, I don't want what happened to me back then to happen again. So they'll have something like historic that you need to talk about. Mm. But you'll have loads of conversations with them over the Saturday and Sunday. Normally, I was really lucky that the drivers I worked with were pretty good at just taking whatever decision it was and carrying it out. And then, like I say, we'd go through it afterwards, right or wrong. Mm. I think the times where they've not have been like, you know, there's some really famous examples, like the Russia wet example, mm -hmm. where um, we called them into pit and they were like, no, it's dry. Yeah. But then when they get round to turn two or three, they're like, mm, actually, it's quite <laughs> wet. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, but there's lots of like, there have been times where, you know, ultimately they need to pull the car into the pit lane. Um, so there have been a few. But again, we just go through and go, this is the pieces of data that we had at the time, whatever. Um, but I've been very lucky in that there hasn't been the like, intense argument that you see from some of the the yeah. pit walls i think and what, what do you think about the current grid and how these cars are you know constantly changing with these regulations drivers are complaining it's getting heavy and it's getting slower some some are saying it's faster the overtakes <laughs> are happening more but for as a strategist like you what is your opinion on the current grid and how it's moving forward yeah i think like when i think of like the regulations I think the weight of the cars have a very small effect, like a strategy team. But I think it is sort of in a cycle of um, the cars are getting heavier, then we need to make them safer. So you're adding on more weight and it just becomes like this cycle. Mm. Um, 
I think the um, going towards the more sustainable engines and stuff is good. Um, the new tires, and I'm hoping as we get into it that the tires start to produce more multiple stop races because that's what's mm-hmm. exciting. Like exactly. people want to see more pit stops, and if they see more pit stops, they'll see more overtaking. So I think a lot of it comes down to having like reasonably high degradation tires that in- encourage that sort of movement in the in the track. Um, in terms of like the grade and the people that are involved, yeah, I think it's really interesting to see. So like some we've got some new guys this year, yeah. we've got some people returning. So and we've got lots of movement. Like even the team managers are moving about this year. Yeah. So it's gonna be really interesting to see, like, you know, it's quite a big move for someone to step into a team. And nobody that steps into a team is gonna affect that team straight away. It's gonna take a little bit of time. Um, but yeah, it's gonna be interesting to see all of those dynamics play yeah. out a little bit, I think. Mm. And we've heard of like the legendary tales, obviously. I mean, Max and GP, Lewis, Bono. Like, how do you think engineers typically build really good driver affinities? Like, how do they get along so well with drivers? Is that just a you know consequence of time and how long you spend with them, or is this something else as well? Yeah, I think it's in? it's a, like a little bit of both because it's like anyone that you work really closely with, and these guys are working together like a lot of the time and going through an all else together. Mm-hmm. You'll end up. You know, the driver would have to, if you get to a point where the driver needs to say very little and it's totally understood by the pit wall, mm-hmm. and that's a really good situation to be in. Mm. Like almost like you're in a relationship with someone and you can finish their sentence. Like that <laughs> sort of like relationship is yeah. like, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's the goal you're aiming for yeah. is that you understand completely what their problem might be or what their need might be. Um, and it varies loads but yeah like the partnerships that you've described the people that have been together for a few years like that really breeds strength Mm. and even things like you know um, like Lewis's fame for being really complaining a lot on the radio and Bono Mm -hmm. takes a lot of abuse but he knows the like passion that he carries and he probably doesn't mean that when he gets out of the car and all these things so again there are things that you can sort of get away with when you work together for a long time but Mm -hmm. maybe not with a new engineer Mm -hmm. um so yeah it's just like and even just like in the garage or in the office when we're talking about strategy stuff to be fit to explain something to Sebastian or Lance or whatever and then fully understand what I mean mm-hmm. and me fully understand their reaction to it mm-hmm. is really quite, you know, it's it's quite important that you sort of build that relationship with them. Right. And that's a, I mean, a person who I think, you know, obviously you've been part of teams, but I'm guessing you also have studied the strategy of other teams as well. I mean, this last season, like there were, I think everybody became a strategist at a certain point <laughs> during certain races. But I mean, obviously Ferrari was being criticized quite heavily yeah. for a lot of, you know, missteps in their strategy. Yeah. What did you think kind of about, you know, their team and their makeup? Like, is it, you know, just a different organization? That's why they were messing up or is it something else there? Yeah, I think like there's a few things is like when you look at some strategists and it, like even some strategies that maybe we would have done from the outside, people find it hard to understand, like why you put on that tire or why you stayed out so long. But there must be something in your modeling or in your department that means um, you couldn't stop on the lap that you wanted to. So like some really good examples are we would have had it in the past where there might have been some debris caught in the brake duct that would push you to stop early because you needed to remove that debris. And that's not obvious to everyone on the outside. Um, so there's loads of little things that sometimes affect what you do that we don't see. And it's so easy after a race to go, oh, and what we should have done. Um, but I think you know, reading between the lines a little bit with Ferrari, a lot of it, and especially what's been said, you know, post-season, um, I think it's more the hierarchy. So, like, if I decide that we want to stop on a lap, but it needs three people above me to approve it, then you've already missed the lap. Yeah. And you've already missed the decision. Mm-hmm. So I think a little bit appears to be from the outside, you know, not pure strategy, but just the structure that's around that team. Mm-hmm. And you know, equally, if you have a few races that go negatively and strategy gets blamed, then people start to take safe decisions mm-hmm. um, or not take decisions at all because that's safer than taking yeah. them. Yeah. So I think it like I'm really hopeful that in the off season there's like a full reset yeah. and then they come back with loads more confidence because like none of these guys are stupid right no. like they're really intelligent guys and yeah. they've got their not through a test but through yeah. some <laughs> some method um so like they they know what they're doing um and i think it's just a structure around them like in my role i was really lucky in aston martin that i always felt really safe to make decisions yeah. and even if it went wrong i didn't feel like i would be criticized but we'd go through it later and figure out what we could have done differently right. and as strategists you need to be you need to feel really safe to make decisions or you'll just freeze yeah. and uh, taking you back to force india and you know 
the lack of money that was happening during that season, you guys were still able to perform at a high level of getting podiums and having a fast car. What was that like, that experience like? Yeah, it was really like that point of time where we were Force India, um, personally was great for me. Um, I was given the, you know, effectively the head of race strategy role at that stage because there was a lack of people and a lack of engineers. Yeah. So I stepped up to this role that I probably wouldn't have otherwise been given. Mm. Um, and was fit to like really embrace it and work with it. Everyone was like working really hard because there was not enough people to do everything. But it meant you did some really interesting things that you would have otherwise not have done. Um, and we had a lot of fun, you know, like we were like a little family. We we're all traveling yeah. together and like everyone was having a lot of fun. Wow. So it was, yeah, it was a really great time. It was difficult and there was a lot of hours and work. But yeah, it was really good fun. And then what about Sakir? You know, tell us a bit about that race, like from start to finish. I mean, Checo's crashing out like was that turn one two yeah it was like yeah turn yeah. two i think it's okay yeah, yeah. yeah and i mean that must have been like oh well the race is pretty much over we're gonna try to get some points but like getting the race win was yeah. probably unimaginable for you guys at that point like tell us a bit about the weekend and kind of the emotions that you had going through that yeah like it was a really difficult you know it was the end of that season it was two races from the end um check with that stage well, i don't know what was happening in reality but was announced not to be having a drive the next season so he was leaving Aston Martin um, or a recent point as we were but not not didn't have a drive so you know there was a feeling that we wanted something big to happen I think we hadn't had a podium that year um, and it was one of the few years where we'd not um, and yeah like you say the, the interesting thing with that race for me looking back on it was we'd not moved venues so we were still in Bahrain it was one week after the race before we still had the same garages. We still had the same pet wall. Like you look down at turn one, it's exactly the same. But the track was so different. Like it was a really um, short lap time compared to the week before. It was much harder to overtake. It was much lower degradation. So it became this like really track position one stop race from a multiple stop race mm -hmm. the week before. So you, without having physically moved, you needed to really change your mindset into what the next week was going to be. And I think we were really good as a team at doing that. And, and so was Checo. And yeah, you had the crash that one, which you're just like, oh, <laughs> you know, it's like we've qualified so well. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, in many ways, he took out um, one of the Ferraris and the Red Bulls. So that's yep. two people that we, you know, probably should have finished ahead. Um, but yeah, you do this like frantic analysis of if the car is okay and if we should stop. Um, and interestingly, the car was totally okay and we could have continued, but we stopped anyway mm. because we knew the medium tire was better than the soft. Mm. Um, and that was one of those decisions that because we'd done all the work pre-event, we knew the medium was going to be better. So, and it was one of the ones where like the race engineer turned around to me and he goes, are you sure about this? And I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> um, and we stopped and because we stopped, we were on a much faster tire than everyone else was forced to start in the soft. And we had a good car that weekend. Um, and then we stuck to like our one stop when other people did two or stopped under safety cars. And obviously Mercedes had the incidents. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, even if we'd finished P3 that weekend, it would have been a fantastic result for the team. But yeah, it was. And then you just get to the, the podium and you're just like, this is like, yeah, this is just like movie gold because he didn't have a drive as far as we knew. Yeah. And that was his first win and my first win. And for a lot of people in the team, their first win. Mm -hmm. Um. So yeah, it felt really like fantastic for what we were doing. And it was so close to the end of the season and people were tired and it had been a tough, a tough run. So yeah, it was really, really cool. Incredible. Big night out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Last question in Q1. I mean, tell us a bit about why you stepped back from the world of F1 and then kind of what you're doing now. I think you're consulting quite a bit. Like tell us a little bit about what you're excited about the work you're doing now. Yeah, cool. So yeah, I stepped back like... I loved what I do. I did um, the traveling for seven years, every event, pretty much the last few. I missed a few and worked for the factory. But yeah, the, the calendar just like post COVID became so hectic with the triple headers and stuff. And the triple headers mean you go away the week before and you're away for the full event and doing all the analysis after. So you just get to like three in a row when you feel like I'm pretty broken now. <laughs> um, and you're just not enjoying it where you really should be. So in December last year, the start of the season, I decided to step away. So I did my six months notice, which was great because I got to still go to my events, still got to sit in the pet wall, still mm -hmm. got to enjoy it. And I actually enjoyed it loads more knowing I was leaving because yeah. it was like, this might be my last time to do this or my last time to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that was cool. Um, and then, yeah, since that, I've done a variety of things that like are just really ad hoc, but mm -hmm. I'm sort of enjoying. 
So I did some work with um, Formula One explaining some strategies on like their YouTube channel. Nice. And that's quite nice because it's one of those, I wouldn't have done it like this, mm. where you can just criticize what other people have done and not <laughs> yeah. worry too much about making decisions. Um, but you sort of feel like you're bringing your knowledge to the general public. So fit to explain things in a more broken down way. Mm. So that was really cool. I did a few of those and I'm hoping that those will maybe continue into this season. Um, I did some work with Sky on their like Any Driven Monday series. Again, trying to explain like little aspects of the strategy stuff to the best of my ability. And yeah, hopefully those two projects continue going forward, which I think is interesting and exciting because um, up until the middle of last year, I'd not watched a race right. from 09, yeah. not being part of a team. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really, it's been really nice to watch it again, see what the coverage is like. Um, and when you watch a race as a strategist, you only watch your driver and the person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So now I see what the whole field's doing. Are and you that's frustrated though? Are you like, yeah. God, you're so well, dumb. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> some of it's frustration, yeah. but then some of it's like, I don't know what's going on. I don't have enough data. Yeah. So some of it's like, I need a data feed. But um, yeah, so I'm doing things like that. And then the other thing that I'm doing that's been like quite interesting from my point of view is um, bringing some of the lessons of F1 to other other um, corporate industries. So, um, you know, the decision making that we do or the data led analysis that we do, like what are the lessons from that that other industries can use to improve? Um, so, yeah, it's been it's been good fun so far. So let's see. Brilliant. That's beautiful. That wraps up Q1. Yeah. Any verdict? That was a very, very, I, I was about to go purple, but I think yeah. <laughs> with a nice green sector. Yeah. Yeah. yeah let's. That's a solid green. Amazing. Well, we'll see <laughs> yeah. if Bernie's able to get a purple in Q2. Stay tuned. We want to give a big shout out to one of our partners, AG1. Now, a couple of years ago, all I was having was a vitamin C and a multivitamin. Mm. But a few months ago, Henny, I came to you. Indeed you did. And I told you, I want to find one thing that has everything, all the vitamins, all the probiotics in one. Yep. And you gave me AG1. It took you long enough. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you like AG1? Uh, I love AG1 because it just felt like I didn't have to take 75 pills just to get my nutritional value. I would wake up, my, my morning routine consisted of me right before breakfast, taking that scoop, and I had all my value all in one little scoop. And it works, honestly. I've yep. been taking it for a few months. Zoom in. Look, Look at, at the that. skin. Oh, Luscious. unfathomable. Ugh. But also, I know a lot of people are concerned about how expensive mm. AG1 is. But when you look at the cost per serving, it's actually not that expensive. No, not at all. It's cheaper than most energy drinks, coffee brands out there. If you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 now and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash track limits. That is drinkag1.com slash track limits. All right, welcome back to the Track Limits Podcast. We're here with Bernie. We're now going to get into Q2. Q2, where we're going to try to learn a little bit more about you as a person. So I want to take you back. You went to Queen's University, Belfast. Yeah. Tell us a bit about the origin story. What did you study? Did you ever envision a career in motorsport when you were going to college? Well, I think it's like, so I did engineering. I did mechanical engineering in Queen's. And I did that because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And when I looked at like the different engine or the different like subjects you could do, that was the one that had the broadest range of potential careers at the end of it. So it sort of felt like just like kicking the decision down the road a little bit. Um, and I really enjoyed my engineering stuff. It was great. And it was only really during that that I even thought about doing um, motorsport or automotive, which is a bit stupid. But um, in Northern Ireland, a lot of the like mechanical engineers go on to do aeronautical stuff um or the aerospace sector so yeah it was a bit like that's where i thought i would end up going more than towards the motorsport side right and i think it was reported that you were one of three female students in a class of 30 was, was that like reflective of maybe your career even in f1 like it is a male dominated industry yeah, yeah sure so like i actually think like compared to some of the people i've heard that did mechanical engineering they're like 10% is actually a reasonably good number. Like, wow. Yeah. But I think that's got better and better over the years. I think and like then it w was okay. Um, yeah, it's really interesting at times when you're... I was trying to think back the other day to my time at McLaren when I joined in the design office. And I don't think as like a mechanical designer, there was anyone else in the design office that was female. Mm -hmm. Like there was some people in aeronautical or in the aero department or there was some people um, in like the systems departments. Um, but I think it was really low numbers. And even sort of as I left sort of Aston Martin Force India, 
um, there's definitely female representation in all of the departments now. Mm. But when I think of like our race meeting where we like sat in a big room, I was generally the only female in that room mm. or mm-hmm. occasionally I'd end up going along to like the FIA meetings where we discuss regulations and things. And then I was like the only female in that room. Right. So you, you often do end up in a situation where you're, you know, at that 10% or lower. Um, but it's getting, it's getting loads better. And it you, didn't feel like unusual at the time. Yeah. So. And you also mentioned that you never even want to be employed in motorsport. What, yeah. what, what, what was that switch? What, yeah, what, what made you change? It's just because I think whenever like, because I did watch F1 when I was little um, and you watch it and you see the drivers and stuff, but you don't really think about all the other jobs that people can do. Yeah. And <laughs> um, especially like years ago, there wasn't even, didn't really even show the pit wall or anything. It just showed like the races and the pit stops. Um Whereas now I think we're loads better at understanding, okay, it takes all these people in the factory to build the cars or whatever. And I just hadn't thought about it. Um, so yeah, I started my engineering degree and I actually did some work for a gas and chemicals company during that, which was sort of what I see myself doing. Um, and then in the last two years, I did a thing called Formula Student. So we built like a little single seater race car. Oh, we raced it against other universities. And it was like that process of, we did the design and everything. Um, and I thought, oh, I quite like this. I quite like like having some design, like having some stuff, like having some build, having some trackside stuff. And we actually raced it two weeks after the Formula One in Silverstone. Mm. So you got to do, it was really cool actually, because you got to like, there was an acceleration event where it was yeah. just like do a straight line. And because I was the lightest, I did the acceleration event, <laughs> but it was like down the start, finish straight at yeah. Silverstone. It was oh. just like, it was, it was really cool. Yeah. Um, so it was only really because of that, that I thought, oh, I should consider like more automotive things or motorsport things. And then just in my like last year, um, McLaren sent out like advertisements for their graduate scheme. Um, and I applied to that, but sort of applied thinking, probably not going to get it but let's just see what happens um and yeah like even then when I was doing the interviews and things I was like well at least I'll go and get to see McLaren so it doesn't really matter if I get (laughs) it or not um so yeah it was really it was quite a big turn from sort of third year of uni to three years later being at McLaren wow and did that um did you always want to be a driver growing up or what no I think it was just that I knew that I probably wasn't good enough to be a driver so I sort of am didn't really think about the sport then as a result of that yeah but you were a fan of the sport yeah exactly you would watch it and stuff but you just didn't think of being involved with it like Mm. even at home there would be a lot of like rallying or like a motorbike racing and stuff but you didn't even really think of the engineers that go into to making that happen so yeah it's really interesting that i just hadn't thought about it (laughs) what about being like a race strategist and an engineer simultaneously like like i think not a lot of people do both or have seen both sides yeah what kind of inspired you to go and kind of pursue both tracks um i think it was just the way it happened so like i started in um mclaren and i sort of felt i hadn't really considered the strategy bit i've really considered the race engineering bit and when you do like junior formula sports so like the GT stuff, they never have two of those people and the strategy is really limited. Mm-hmm. Um, so like in the GT stuff, you've generally got a pit window that you're aiming for and things. Um, so I just pursued the race engineer, like data engineer, that type of role. And that was, I really got into trying to improve the car and improve the driver. And I really loved that. And it was only really when I moved to Aston that the strategy stuff came along. And that was really bizarre as well, because that wasn't like a chosen route, if that makes sense. Like mm. I went to Aston or Force India as it was doing like half performance and a half strategy. Mm-hmm. And then when I got there, the strategists left and they were like, um, we know we said it was half performance, half strategy, but now you're just doing strategy. I was like, <laughs> you are the strategy. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I've not done any strategy yeah. before. So let's see. But you do have, you know, you've picked up bits of race experience. And that was really interesting because it's actually um, it's Randy who's at McLaren now was there and he had we had two races where we overlapped there was mm. one other strategist on him so he had one race where he showed me what he was doing and a second race where he tried to let me do it and then the third race he was gone I was like okay <laughs> oh, no. so it was like quite a big leap at the time mm-hmm. um but yeah it was really great that those guys showed faith in me to do it and so the strategist stuff sort of happened more than a choice but I think loads of things in my career have happened yeah. more than choice yeah and for people who want to pursue a career in either race engineering or race strategist what kind of education do they need what kind of circle do they have to be a part of or who do they have to reach out to that you think yeah so i think like for me you know the most common route is to do like a really strong mechanical engineering degree 
a lot of strategists actually do mathematics degrees or statistics degrees, like that type of thing. Um, or more and more we're seeing sort of data science-y type roles because there's so much more of that now, especially in the strategy department. Um, the, the engineering bit, I think the difficult thing is that the number of, if you think of the number of engineers in the world and then the number that are in Formula One, well, the number in the pit wall is so minimal. Like you've got one strategist a team and two race engineers a team. So mm. you're down to like a very small number of people. Yeah. Um, but it's just about working hard at it. The one thing that I thought was really beneficial was trying to get some experience. So, you know, a junior formula, you know, your local karting team, your local racetrack, your local GT team are normally crying out for people mm. to help. Mm. So you can get some like data or race engineering experience or just see what those guys are doing. And that really stands well when you try and get into a, um, an F1 team. And then loads of the teams now are doing like apprenticeships and graduate schemes and things. So it's just about getting in and proving that you're prepared to work hard initially. No, no, I was going to say, and for women that want to also enter the sport, uh, do you think that FIA F1 is doing a great job in trying to ensure that this is going to continue to happen and have more women leadership? Yeah, I think so. And I think like all of the teams are really trying hard on it. And I think in recent years, especially people are trying a bit better with um, the working hours and sort of trying to make things quite flexible. Yeah. But like for me personally, I've never experienced any negative things being a female in F1 um, or any sort of roadblocks to that position. So I think the teams are pretty fair in that if you're the best person for the job the rest of it doesn't matter mm. um but i think there's a lot of encouragement out there and there's loads of things that you know i've got involved with or other girls in the sport have got involved with to encourage young girls to think about engineering because i think the problem for me was at 15 nobody was telling me i should go and do engineering, engineering. it just wasn't a discussion and mm. um, so we're trying to they're trying to make that better which is really good in terms of culture i mean you transitioned also from mclaren to well, I guess Force India Racing Point Aston Martin. <laughs> yeah. That that culture was a different. How did that kind of make you feel in terms of having to adapt? And I mean, I'm also curious from Force India to Racing Point to Aston Martin, did that even change? Yeah. So like the McLaren to Force India was huge because mm-hmm. McLaren were such a big, well-established team. And mm-hmm. um, they had like a lot more resource, a lot more money. Um, so, yeah, it felt huge, that move. Um, you go to Force India as it was at the time, you got a much smaller factory. You walk into the design office and you're like, where is everybody? Like (laughs) there's five times the people at McLaren. Um, And I used to work in suspension design for a while at McLaren. And there was like 10 of us. And then you go to Force India, there's like one guy. I'm like, what What were we doing before? So like that felt like a really huge transition. Mm. Um, It had positives and negatives. Like, the canteen wasn't as nice (laughs) or there wasn't a gym or whatever but like the people were really friendly and worked really well together and the atmosphere was like really like everyone pulling along together everyone trying to work really hard so the atmosphere was amazing Mm. um and then the other changes so like the recent one or the force i need a recent point aston martin like that was much more gradual and happen much more, you know, it's the same team, we're in the same building, mm. like they're moving building this year, but it was much more like a progression and it's happened much more slowly over time. So I think if I went now from Aston Martin back to the old Force India, it would be the same shock as it was from McLaren, mm. but that's happened so much more gradually over time. So there's not been the same swing change there, if you like. Yeah. And is there one or two moments that you would like to share other than Secure winning in 2020 that you are like, this is at the moment that part of your career? I think, um, yeah, there's probably been a few, most of them are probably like the podium stuff. I think the podiums that stand out was my first one was Russia 2015. Yeah. I'd only been with the team a few months. Um, and you sort of think as a non-strategist really at that stage, oh, this might actually mm-hmm. be okay yeah. with the support and stuff that you've around you. Um, so that was great. That was my first podium with the team. Um, the Monaco podium was amazing. Mm-hmm. Like it was, that was good and tough because Chaco had a really good race and Nico had a really bad race for very similar decisions actually that were made, but just slightly at the wrong time. And that was really unfortunate. But so some of the teams quite sad and some of the teams quite happy. Yeah. So it's a yeah. mixed emotion that one. Um, but yeah, they've been those are sort of the ones that stand out. I think um, the only other one that stands out that maybe doesn't on paper is there was a Brazil where we actually finished fourth. Um, a really wet one 
but we made every decision correctly. So from a strategist's point of view, I felt Mm -hmm. like every decision was really good for the right reasons. And we'd really like hung on to our nerve quite a lot. Um, So yeah, those are the ones probably. Super cool. And when it came to the drivers you worked with, what was the biggest thing that surprised you about them? Like as somebody, again, who potentially even wanted to be a driver at some point? Yeah, I think um, the drivers I work with, I think the biggest thing that people on the outside don't understand is how approachable they are and how helpful they generally are. Like I started with Jensen in 2014 and I was very new to performance engineering and Jensen had obviously a few years experience, but he was really helpful in terms of knowing that I was trying to help him um, and you're trying to get the best out of each other and he knows that developing me as an engineer is helpful to that. Um, so yeah, I think for all of them it's been that they're much more normal people than we maybe give them credit for at times. So, um, and you know, particularly two years ago when Sebastian joined the team and he's this like mighty figure of the sport (laughs) and everyone's like a little bit apprehensive about him joining or, you know, me personally, how harsh he's renowned for his strategy criticism. Um, so how tough it's going to be, but actually it was a really lovely experience and I'm really glad I had that opportunity to meet him and get to know him. Um, so yeah, I think the thing that's shocking is how approachable they generally are and how easy they are at times to work with. Not always, but yeah. sometimes. <laughs> oh, we're going to all miss that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> were you sad when he, he called it quits? Well, yes and no, because he called it quits on the weekend I was leaving. Oh, wow. So it was like my final weekend. Yeah. It, the weekend was meant to be about me. Yeah. And then suddenly <laughs> okay. Seb announces yeah. it. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it's like all these people are outside the motorhome, not for my last race. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, like I feel I'm shocked and not shocked at the same time yeah. that he called it then. Because I know that like he he's, he's a lot of other equipment, a lot of other things he wants to do. Um, but yeah, I think he is. He was really good for the sport. And like hopefully he will in his own way continue to be involved. So. Who knows? And, you know, maybe he gets out of the car and he's like, oh, I really miss that. And, he's yeah, back, and he wants so to come back. Yeah. Um, what was the, the balance between, you know, you mentioned that you traveled a lot, attended almost every race. What was that work-life balance for you? How did um, you find the fun of it? Well, yeah, it's um, weird because sometimes now you speak to people and they're like, well, what do you, what's your hobbies? I'm like, I don't <laughs> have hobbies. I don't have time for hobbies. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like, especially a few years ago, you just tried to enjoy as much as you can so enjoy the races you were like you would go to Australia for the first race of the year you would be very busy in the run-up to that but then where I could I tried to stay out the week after in Australia um, and you would be working on all your analysis you would do like a nine to five day but then you'd have that weekend off in Australia or whatever it might be so I tried to like make the most of the traveling aspect by fitting in whatever holidays and we had some fantastic holidays Um, I was really lucky for the majority of the time that my other half was with a different team. Mm -hmm. So it meant that we could do our dinners out and our nights away and there wasn't someone at home going, when are you going to be back? (laughs) Um, So yeah, like you try to just make the most of your time when you're you're there. Um, And it it is difficult for sure. But then particularly in the last six months, you realise this is not an opportunity that everyone gets. So not everyone gets to stand in the pet lane or... Um, to sit on the pit walls so yeah it's been really great and especially like when you were young and could do all the holidays it was I loved it and see all the different cultures and then do your friends even understand what you, yeah. what you do um I think some of them do yeah. and I think like I've been fortunate enough to get some of them into the paddock and they've been fit to see around yeah. um and I always find it interesting when you get people who don't know a lot about Formula yeah. One and then they're like, God, there's like loads of team members and it's much more team sport than I yeah. thought it was, which is like would have been my impression watching the TV that it was just one driver. So, yeah, they sort of understand. I think what people don't understand is that like on a Friday when the sessions are on or after the sessions, you're doing your debriefs or you're doing like all your reporting and stuff. Like people don't understand how you can have time to look at your phone and reply to one message. People are like, I texted you like three days ago and you've not replied. I'm like, yeah, I've been really busy. You're like, yeah. how could nobody's that busy? But it's yeah. like, well, no, I genuinely am. So yeah. I think that's the bit that people maybe don't get. Fair enough. Well, I think that wraps up Q2. Henny, verdict? That, was, that, that was a purple set. Purple. <laughs> All right. Was a purple I feel like I've achieved something. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to get into the rapid fire round soon. This is actually going to be a test now for, for Bernie. Real, yeah. So we'll see how she does in Q3. All right. Welcome back to the final segment of the Track Limits interview with Bernie. We're now going to get into the rapid fire round. Bernie. 
Eddie. I'm nervous. Yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> good. Yeah, That's good, what we good, want. Yeah. This is like starter racer. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> all right. We're gonna go through all these questions. Try to keep your answers rapid and full of fire. Here okay. We go. First question: What is your favorite track to be a strategist on? So I think my favorite is probably somewhere like Bahrain because it's like easy to overtake. Mm. So you can make loads of decisions that are different to like the normal track position ones. Cool. Perfect, Bernie. I'm about to show you a photo. Please explain what was happening in here because <laughs> okay. I don't know if the photo did you justice here, but it's, it seems like you were jumping up and oh. Chekhov's right behind you. Oh, okay. So I seen, so this is one where I, I think it's going to rain. Okay. So generally you put your hand out to check if it's raining or not because we have loads of sensors yeah. on like the tell us loads of things, but um, sometimes they're wrong or sometimes they're not accurate. Yeah. So like, Put your hand out and check if it's raining or not. And I think just check was like, right what? There. Yeah. <laughs> and but normally what's happening, this is not quite. Normally what's happening is in the garage, the guys are all looking at you, giving you abuse for putting your hand out <laughs> to check it. So they're just like, <laughs> I'm like, we can see it's raining. You're an idiot. Yeah. Oh my God. I love that. What is your least favorite track to be mm. a strategist on? Oh, I think that's probably ones like, um, like the Monaco Singapore's are quite hard mm. because you it's really you make one call and it needs to be absolutely right and there's like loads of pressure yeah nice uh, what regulation change would you institute double points on the last race yeah Sound so like uh, this is pretty controversial I think I would get rid of Friday oh, oh so no practice no practice just like do FP3 qualify wow. and race because the races that we don't have a Friday yeah. or it's like wet or whatever yeah. people go into Saturday with no idea what's going on no data, yep. so you just need to make a load more decisions and like most engineers hate that idea because they're like no I want to do my test but yeah. it would I think it would make it so much more interesting wow. and it would be one less day to work so yeah. 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 <laughs> I get a day off the driver that you've worked with that you prefer the most whether it's Sergio oh. Nico it's getting Beth. spicy yeah <laughs> <laughs> They're all great. They're yeah. all Preface great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if anyone's listening, they're my favorite. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I love Sebastian. Nice. Most recently, yeah. Uh, which driver would you trust to drive you blindfolded around a track? They're blindfolded, you're in the car. They're blindfolded. Yes. yes. None of them. <laughs> That's a I thought maybe that I was blindfolded, no. but no, they're, no. None. Not even Checo after he did the whole Mexico <laughs> video. No, because I don't, like, even if I was blindfolded and they were not, yeah. I don't trust them not to t make the opportunity to really <laughs> frighten me. So That's true. I think no. I think no. Okay. Greatest driver of all time, in your opinion? Oh, I think, well, this is difficult because it's so subjective to what you've had when you were little. But, you know, I grew up working, watching Michael Schumacher. Yeah. Um, so someone like that, you know, someone like Senna has to be up there. So those are probably the two names that spring to mind. If if you were an F one driver, what team would you choose? Oh, um, Red Bull seems like a lot of fun, but I think Mercedes are probably probably where I would be at. Yeah. Okay. What is one skill a race engineer absolutely needs to have? Like you just need to have it. Patience. Patience. <laughs> <laughs> Patience. Um, and maybe read between the lines. So I think a lot of people say things would mean something different. Cool. But patience, probably. Nice. Which uh, which race engineer do you respect the most? Oh, I'm going to veto that one. Yeah. <laughs> nice. We got our first go. veto. <laughs> Let's go. Love it. What piece of F1 memorabilia do you currently own that you have a lot of love for or would you like to own? Um, what I, I would love to have a helmet. I would love to have a driver helmet. I think that's really special to have one of those. Um, what I was given when I left West India was, oh, I've been given two things. Um, I was given a rear wing end plate wow. that the team signed when I left West India. So my current problem is trying to figure out, because like last year's end plate <laughs> had like a big bump in it. I need to figure out how to get it on a wall somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was given, at McLaren, I designed an oil pump for a gearbox. Mm -hmm. And I was given the oil pump and it's got like all the little internals oh, and stuff in it. Dope. So. That's not as impressive, but it's a very cool piece of care. Yeah. Most embarrassing moment you had during a race weekend. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> you, I've had hundreds. Yeah. I think everyone's had hundreds. I think the two that spring to mind is in spa, there's like some metal stairs that yeah. have been there forever and they're really slippy. So at one point I fell down the stairs um, and I think, I'm pretty sure it was Ricardo was at the bottom and picked me up. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, oh, shit. But then I think the probably most embarrassing one is um, the factory is really close to Silverstone okay. race. So I would cycle across to the race 
And as I was cycling, um, a car stopped in front of me. So I had to stop really suddenly, fine. But I needed to, like, I was clipped in. So I was trying to get going again. And I put, like, all my effort in to get going. But I realized my chain had come off. So I basically, like, just oh. flipped myself off the bike. But that happened as a van load of McLaren mechanics came past. And it was about two years after I left oh, McLaren. No. So they had, like, wind down the windows and were, like, <laughs> shouting out at me. And, like, nobody was helping. Everyone was just, oh like... And by the time I got to the paddock, yeah. now covered in grease, like, it seemed like everybody knew I'd fallen off my bike. Like, yeah. everyone was, like, gone. yeah. <laughs> it was... That's the one that sticks with me the most. Oh, I was true. very careful every year after that cycling. That would, <laughs> fair enough. If you could have one superpower beyond riding a bike, what would you <laughs> Oh, yeah. Um, oh, I don't know. I think probably always having better hair. I think when you're sat on the pit wall, you're always like, why does the back of my hair always look yeah. so shit? Um, yeah, or teleportation. Like sitting in airports, getting on flights. I just, you feel like you. I've lost days of my at one point I discussed trying to keep track of the amount of time that year I spent at a conveyor belt. Oh wow. Because it's just it's a lot of time. So oh, if God. I could just get there, that would be amazing. Nice. What celebrity would be a great fit for as an F1 driver? Um I think it needs to be someone like some sort of comedian would be great, <laughs> I think. Um or some of the guys that do loads of stunt, like yeah. someone like the like Tom Cruise types, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah. We got Tom Cruise yeah, before. We've got yeah. Tom Cruise yeah. before. Um, share your prediction for this coming F1 season in 2023, your constructors champion and your drivers champion. I think that, again, this is one that's based on what I maybe hope or want to happen. I think hopefully it's going to be really tight. I would in many ways love to see Leclerc and Ferrari do it because I think Ferrari probably had the car at least as a star of last year and hopefully they come out of the box a bit better this year. Um, so, yeah, that's I'm going to I'm going to hedge my bets on that. Oh. Nice. Okay, this is the last question. Okay. You're writing an autobiography on yourself. Which yeah. one resonates with you the most? Uh, we got the daredevil, the dream catcher, the free spirit, or the hardest worker? Mine's probably the hardest worker. Yeah. At least some time ago before I quit. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. That is the rapid fire yeah. round. That, I think that's another purple. That is a purple. <laughs> right? That yeah. is a purple promotional poll. Even done. though there's a veto there. there yeah, there was. There. Ah, let's ah, take it. Uh, Gurple. Let's give her Gurple. There we go. Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming on, Bernie. We really appreciate it. We end every interview asking our guests, how do you want to be remembered? You know, what sort of legacy do you want to leave behind? Do you have a Um, 30-second answer for that? (laughs) (laughs) Another hot round. Yeah. I'm going to... None of my answers have been 30 seconds. I think, yeah, just as someone who is kind and worked hard. Yeah. I don't like the rest of it. I think you're forgotten pretty quickly in this industry. So... As long as I wasn't unkind, then that'll be okay. Fantastic. Well, really appreciate you coming on. Where can people follow you on social media if they want to stay tuned? Yeah, so I'm Bernie Collins one yeah. on my Instagram. Um, and I think the same on my on my Twitter. So just get me there. Perfect. We'll put all of those socials in the show description, guys. Thank you again for tuning in. Feel free to go and check our other episodes on tracklimitspod.com. Give us a follow on social media and we'll see you guys at the next episode. <laughs> <laughs>